Well, that was a struggle, but we're live. So here we are. I'm going to be answering your guys' questions right now in the chat. You can load them. Thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. We're talking about your questions about the Bible, Christianity, the Christian life, all those things. I'm not the master of scripture, but I have devoted a lot of my life to trying to understand it well. And I'll give you the best answers I can, being honest, if I don't know something and giving you guys some, something to think about for sure today. And I've already got the starter question for us. This is from Bella. Bella says, since the Bible says we can lift holy hands up to the Lord, and this is due to the imputed righteousness of Christ and not our own, can you explain David David's words in Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24? And to understand what Bella is asking about, we need to actually go to the scripture itself. And, oh, I had to reboot my system. So let me, give me just a second to get this set. Um, the, uh, the thing that you've just clicked on, if you're new, most of you are not new, but if you're new, is my YouTube channel where I try to help people learn how to think biblically about everything because the Bible's more beautiful, wonderful, and life-changing than hardly anyone realizes, if anyone realizes how great it is. Uh, but here we are in Psalm chapter 18, verses 20 through 24. This is where David is going to say something about how he is righteous. And the question that Bella naturally has is like, how does that work? Like if no one is righteous, but David says he's righteous, like I can lift up my holy hands. This is something I've taught previously is that we sing that song. I lift up holy hands to the Lord. And, and that's my interpretation is that um, God has made my hands holy. But what about this verse? It says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, that would be like his goodness. He has recompensed me for I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God for all his ordinances were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. So, like, how is it that yet in other places, the scripture says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And this is something that I puzzled on for a while in my, in my own Bible reading. And I kind of, like, would have in my head, okay, no one is righteous, no one. I mean, that is, I'm quoting, you know, Romans 3. Like, no one is righteous. That's what scripture says. And that no one can come except through the Son. Well, the issue is this. Um, we use the word, like, righteous and good in two very different ways, and so did they, I think. This is my understanding of the passage of Scripture here, and I think this is consistent in the Old and New Testament as well. There are times where the Bible says no one is good, no one is righteous, that we cannot stand on our own righteousness, our righteousness is as filthy rags, and this pertains to our relationship with God. This is talking about the whole person. The whole person is not righteous. The whole person is not good in the sense that God is good. This is why Jesus talks to the rich young ruler about how he's He's good. The, the rich young ruler is like, oh, good teacher. And he's like, oh, you call me good. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And yet here David says he's righteous because there's this other way that we use those terms, right? When the Bible talks about a righteous man, it's often just talking about what we in our colloquial English call a good person. And I know there are those who go like, don't, you can't call anyone a good person because no one's good. Well, it depends on what you mean by good. If you mean good, like as far as people go, they're good. There's a way to say that, right? Like this is what scripture says about Joseph of Arimathea. He was a good man. Like this is what the Bible talks. It says it. He was a good man. But it doesn't mean good, like righteous and holy before God, right? Like, like as if he died, he would stand before God and God would be like, I have nothing against you for you have never sinned for you are good. Like that is not at all what is meant. Um, rather, scripture is doing the same thing we do. 
we say no one is righteous before God, but yet we can identify that person is 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 good as far as people go. It's a very much like a person-to-person comparison, whereas final judgment is person-to-God comparison. I'm measured by his holiness. Now, to push this a little further, understand this, that Psalm 18 is David talking about how he's being protected by God because he's righteous. This doesn't mean his whole life is righteous. It really just means that David was righteous or doing the right thing in a particular situation. He's having a, a trouble from enemies, people who are coming against him, but he hasn't done anything to them to cause them to come against him. It doesn't mean he's never sinned. It doesn't mean that at all. I mean, if you look at the very writings of David, like Psalm 51, where he's talking about how he sinned against God and how no sacrifice that he can offer can wash this sin away. And he just needs God to provide the sacrifice. God will wash him with hyssop. God will, will be the one that cleanses him. This beautiful, agonizing psalm crying out for forgiveness. We know that David wasn't perfectly righteous. So he can only be seen as righteous in relation to a scenario. So let's say that like at your job, you, uh, you're a hard worker. You are serving the Lord by serving your employer. You show up on time, you do your, your job, and then you, you go home. But you're also witnessing. At your lunch break, you share your faith. Your boss gets wind of it, gets mad at you, fires you. I could say that you're righteous in that scenario. In this situation, you are righteous. You've done nothing wrong. But I wouldn't mean you are a righteous before God human being in all ways. And so we use this, we use the same you know, terminology here that, that scripture does. And I'll give you another scripture to help reinforce this. I'm not just making stuff up here. In uh, Romans chapter 4, we get a teaching on how Abraham was saved and how David was saved and it was not by their righteousness. So, right, because if, so in other words, any righteousness it speaks of them having in the Old Testament is not a saving righteousness. It's like a situational righteousness. What Proverbs talks about when it talks about the righteous and the wicked, that kind of situational thing. Verse 1 of Romans 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, found uh, according to the flesh, has found? I, I have the New King James in my head. I'm actually going to switch to the ESV, partly because my screen is set for that uh, border. Uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And now he quotes Genesis. Abraham believed God. He just believed and, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham had righteousness simply by believing. Now, keep listening with me because it's going to talk about David in a second and talk about how David was righteous. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How, how is he righteous? By faith. And then David is righteous the same way. So then he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So David's position of, of, of righteousness before God isn't based on like Psalm 18, whatever situation he was in there. It's based on the forgiveness there is and the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith. And then he quotes David here from Psalm 51. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So I hope that answers that question. Um, it is it is okay as a Christian to say that someone's a good person. As long as you know what you mean. Right? Because the world, when they say someone's a good person, what they mean is, if they died, they would deserve to go to heaven. Well, if you mean that, if you mean they deserve heaven because of their goodness, that is an unbiblical concept. If you mean... They're a, he's a good father, he's a good uh, friend, she's a good worker, whatever it is, right? That's that's all re a relational thing, good by comparison to some sort of normal human behavior, 
right? This is not compared to God's righteousness. And that's what the scripture does there with those statements about righteousness. They'll help you understand the book of Proverbs better, I think, as well. Madison Torres has a question. It says, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? As someone who has studied the Bible and believes the story of Adam and Eve, I want to learn more about the timeline. How are their fossils? So let me say this. As someone who myself is not like firm on my view on this issue, I'm going to share with you a few options that I think are within Christendom. As in, there are Christians, genuine Christians, right? There, and, and even they would agree with each other, even though they disagree about, say, dinosaurs, they would agree that the other, the other disagreeing side is still Christian. So this is something like an in-house discussion amongst Christians about um, the early chapters of Genesis, the age of the earth, and all that. So I'll, I'll give you like a few options. One option would be what um, I was initially familiar with growing up, which is young earth creationism. And young earth creationism would say, well, dinosaurs were made by God. Dinosaurs are more recent and that they, are, they were on the ark, right? That, um, and then the way they would explain uh, dinosaurs being on the ark, uh, at least some of the ones I've heard, is that they just brought the babies, right? Like maybe there's a giant dinosaur, but you just, you bring the babies. They live longer, they eat less and, and they sleep more and are, I think they sleep more, depending on how old they are. <laughs> anyway, and you want them to be able to produce more babies when they get off the ark. So that would be the idea is like, oh, well, that's, that's, they were on the ark and then they just kind of died over time. And you're like, yeah, but those same young earth creationists put the, put the flood like not that long ago. <laughs> I mean, some might say, um, you know, uh, 4,000 years ago and others would say further, further back than that. So that what they would, do then, as far as the fossils go, they would say two things, and I'm just going to summarize, and I know I'm probably going to make young earth creationists roll their eyes when I summarize so briefly their positions on these things, but they would say that the um, the flood is what created all the fossils that we see. So when you look at all the fossil layers, uh, the, the vast majority of those were laid down during the flood itself. And so when you see dinosaurs, oh, well, that was just a result of the flood. So they look at vast amounts of sediment and then they try to build a case for this. So they, they have like, they try to look at plate tectonics and paleontology and suggest there's a young earth. They suggest that the uh, radiometric dating methods are just not, they're not being read properly or they're inaccurate or something along those lines. And that's one view. That's like a young earth creationist view. And that would have been my view at a younger age because that's what I was being taught. And um, as time has gone on and I study these things more, I've, I've, I don't feel be, beholden to that view. And so personally, and I'm just sharing with you guys my open and honest opinions here, Christians can disagree on these issues. Um, I, I think there's other viable views. And one of those views would be the, um, the old earth view. And so the old earth view would try to say, okay, the general dating of the dinosaurs being, you know, 65 million plus years, years ago is accurate. And that they just really were really old, really long time ago, they lived and died. And then they would oftentimes, the people who hold this view are going to try to either, well, what they're probably going to try to do is is just say that the, the Garden of Eden happened much later, right? They're Adam and Eve are special creation, but it's just not 24 hour days that we see in Genesis. That's just not what's actually happening in history. It's taught, it's teaching truth about what happened. It's just not meaning literal days, literal 24 hour days. And so they would say, okay, um, yeah, dinosaurs, they, they, you know, died off, um, Adam and Eve come on the scene and then someone goes, well, how is their death before Adam and Eve? How is their death before Adam and Eve? And, and actually here's where I'm going to agree with them. I don't think the scripture confines us to think that there could be no animal death before Adam and Eve. That's my honest opinion about it. 
um, this is a longer discussion and I'm just starting fires and I have these conversations, but my encouragement to you guys as Christians, like we, we honestly have to be able to not agree on these issues and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't draw these, these hard lines over every single doctrine you hold. You can't, or you will be an incredibly divisive person, but we do need to draw hard lines over, um, over the trustworthiness of scripture, over the identity of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that sort of thing. So that's how like they would have it. Now this doesn't entail evolution exactly. This could be progressive creationism like Hugh Ross. That's, that's their view from reasons to believe. They believe in like a progressive creationism. There's other views that fit that as well. And so the guys I'd recommend if you're interested in learning more about that is actually um, like Stephen Meyer or guys, you know, his, his compadres. So the guys from the uh, intelligent design community. These guys are brilliant. They've done very serious scientific work, um, peer-reviewed, published papers, and I'd recommend their work to people who are interested. And um, then there's then there's just the evolutionary view, right? And to me, this this one is the one I would have the hardest time with personally. Like I, while I'm open to like an old Earth personally, I have a harder time with that view. I don't think it's impossible. I, I I'm open to the possibility of someone convincing me that Scripture could somehow be compatible with it, but I don't think it it is at the moment. And I'm I'm going to be honest about that. I just don't want to hold every belief. As if it is the belief, as if it is the deity of Christ or something. Um, yeah, there's there's other views as well to look at. Um, William Lane Craig's recently been presenting his view on these things, where he t- looks at Genesis as like an archetypal, historical type thing. That's my term for it, um, where he suggests um, it's it's a specific genre of literature that we do find in other ancient Near Eastern works. And he identifies the genre and then comes up with interpretive principles for it. It's not just like a willy nilly kind of like, I don't believe Genesis thing. It's not like that at all. It's very respectful and thoughtful and maybe he's right. So there's a few thoughts for you. Um, yeah. Uh, dinosaurs. There's, there's, in other words, there's multiple options. Now, some would say that Leviathan in the book of Job, Leviathan behemoth, that these are actually dinosaurs. Um, and so they prove that dinosaurs were coexisting with mankind and Job knew about these dinosaurs. The problem is that Leviathan and Behemoth, um, whatever they were, it would only describe two beings. Okay, so let's say that, let's take Leviathan in particular. Let's say that Leviathan is actually a dinosaur, hypothetically, right? Like some have suggested it was like a brontosaurus or something, but let's just, let's just say it was an actual dinosaur. Um, well, knowing that there was one dinosaur that Job knows, and it was probably some ocean-going creature, whatever it was, Knowing that there's one doesn't mean that they're all alive coexisting with Job. So I just feel like that passage doesn't really prove much, even if it does say there was this one creature. It could have been just a creature we're not familiar with now, um, something we're not going to find the bones of. There's probably been things that have existed and gone extinct that we'll, we've never known about. We find about new new species and stuff all the time. So there's a few thoughts for you guys. Um, my biggest counsel for Christians is to slow down on the topic of um, uh, dinosaurs in particular and how they plug into the rest of scripture and just recognize within the legitimate, honest, true body of Christ, there are different opinions. And when we mischaracterize each other, we start drawing these lines and then we start blaming each other for all the faults and all the problems in the church, right? The old earth creationists are like blaming all the young earth creationists. You're the reason why people are falling away from Christ. And the young earth creationists are like, you're the reason why people don't believe the Bible. And um, this is um, unhelpful. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the right way to go, man. You don't prove your view by just accusing the other side 
of causing all the problems in the church, right? I, I, I saw this recently. Someone did a video response to something I did and they were like, this is the reason for all the problems in the church because it, it wasn't even something I did. It was an interview I did with somebody else and they were like, rah, 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 rah. and I just thought I'm not even going to reply to this nonsense. So Mario Tucci has a question. He says, I saw your video explaining that babies go to heaven and I agree with you. Does this apply to people with severe dementia so they can't repent because they had a clear mind before? God bless. Um, I think that a, um, my short answer here, I think a person with severe dementia means that they were not always handicapped. So there was a season in life where they were aware and accountable for their actions. And so um, someone who has severe dementia, perhaps they have late stage Alzheimer's or something like that. I do believe that that person would, in my view, probably be um, judged based upon their when they had the capacity to make a choice. So if they're truly losing capacity and, and there's major losses of capacity for those who've known someone with Alzheimer's, the loss of capacity is shocking and hard and difficult for everybody. Um, I would think that the point at which they no longer can respond, that's when they're no longer responsible. But it's not like now they get a pass to heaven. I think they more likely they're going to be judged based upon the decisions they made when they were lucid and thinking and able to make these choices and understand them. Whereas now they've just lost their ability to interact with the world or be responsible for um, for a lot of stuff. It's almost with Alzheimer's. It's almost like the the flesh just. Um, is is unrestrained it's a really sad and terrifying thing um, all right summer monsoon has a question hi mike how do you respond to people who say that religion is just a way to control society perhaps even in a good way and that it is uh that it just psychologically helps people to not fear death thank you um i consider those people to be giving us a great compliment because <laughs> think about it for a second summer what they have said so far is that religion controls society in a good way. And, and I would argue that there's a truth to that, right? Like people who um, who have no sort of view of, of, of God, they tend to live less restrained lives. Um, there's, there isn't really a reason, unless they have like these leftover vestiges of these religious views that they have before, they don't really have as much reason to be self-sacrificially loving and honoring to others. I mean, on an, let's put it this way. If you have no religion, okay, well, that would put you at sort of like an atheist lifestyle, whether or not you're an atheist, whether you say there is no God, or if you just ignore God and you're like, I have no worship towards God. I don't honor God. I don't, I just act like God doesn't exist. If that's your role, if that's your spot, then you have no reason to think that morals are even a thing. This doesn't mean you're immoral. This is where atheists will always hear the Christian saying, atheists are immoral. And that's actually not what we're saying. We're saying something a lot smarter than that. We're saying on an atheistic worldview, you don't have a foundation or explanation for morality. Do you understand? It, it, becomes, it becomes preference. Well, I just like it this way. I just prefer it that way. And knowing that in all reality, we do have a flesh and a sin nature that pulls us towards sin. And then you stop thinking that there's going to, there's a God, there's a true morality, there's a, there's a judgment ahead. It does affect your lifestyle in negative ways. And so it does, it does help society. Uh, Christianity has radically blessed society. Now also, um, religion can harm society because anything that can be used for good can be used for evil as well. But I take these as compliments. Uh, religion helps control society, perhaps in a good way. And it psychologically helps people to, to not fear death. Like, I'm sorry, but that seems like a positive thing to me. Is it bad if my, 
trusting Christ helps me to not fear death. That's not bad. And whether it helps society or keeps me from fearing death, that doesn't prove it's true or false. All you've done is say it has benefits, like as if that's a bad thing, right? So yeah, that's definitely not the case. Now, if you want to suggest that religions were invented, you can actually look at the stories of those religions. So Muhammad with Islam, it seems clear that that was invented. I mean, as you, as you look into it more deeply. Uh, if you look at Hinduism, it looks more like, to me, like Hinduism came up with a bunch of isolated religions based upon the worship of different gods, and they sort of tried to like cram them all together into just sort of a strange, you know, Hinduism is, is a mixed bag. It's, it's difficult to even say what the tenets of Hinduism are, you know, that it would go across the board. Um, if you look at Mormonism uh, or something like that, you can see that this is just an alteration of Christianity. This is a hijacking. A man named Joseph Smith just fabricated something on the back of Christianity, called it the new, the, the real Christianity, um, ignorant of, of, of actual historical Christianity, and then even, even trying to change the Bible at times to try to fit with his new beliefs. So like you can prove that Joseph Smith made that up. But with scripture, with the Bible, with Jesus, I think we have proof of the opposite. I think we have proof standing right before us that, that this thing, Christianity happened, like it just happened. It wasn't invented. Um, Jesus, his death and resurrection comes at this unique moment in history where there's all this messianic expect, expectation and then the Messiah, Jesus shows up, he dies, he rises again. His disciples who fled in fear now are now are believing in him because they saw him alive from the dead. You, you got to watch the evidence for the resurrection videos, whether it's mine or, or people who've done it better than me, like uh, William Lane Craig or Gary Habermas or something like that. Um, there is massive historical support for uh, miracles in the Bible, the prophecy of scripture, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. So this is fantastic, right? So what we're saying so far is Christianity seems to help people and it has historical support that it's valid and true. These are all wonderful things. So don't let someone be like, well, religion was just a way to control society. Like if, if, if that's all it is, I want them to prove it. But if you're saying it helps society, then I agree with you. Chris Horn says, hi, Mike, you are a huge blessing. Thanks, Chris. Um, it's encouraging to hear that. Do you think Matthew 23, 8 through 12 means that we shouldn't use ministry titles? Ooh, good question. Um, then you go on to say elders in 1 Timothy 3 and pastors in Ephesians 4 seem to be roles and gifts rather than titles. So let's let's look at that passage together, you guys. Matthew 23, verse 8 through 12. And I will bring it up. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Um, this, um, this comes after Jesus is basically ripping on the, the Pharisees and the scribes, these guys, because they love to be elevated above others. And so let's just read what comes before Jesus saying this so we can understand the context of it. I do think Jesus is making a strong statement here. He often makes strong statements that that it's okay to qualify them with more information to understand them more thoroughly, right? And let's get the context so we understand what he's trying to ward us away from. Then Jesus said, the, uh, said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. 
For they preach but do not practice. They tie heavy burdens up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love, they love the place. I wonder how he said it. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And you know what they love? They love greetings in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. They like it. They like when people are like, rabbi, hey, oh, rabbi, oh, rabbi. When they would walk through the marketplace, it was just culturally uh, normal that they would actually stand for the rabbis as they walked by and then they would they would they would make their clothing look different so that they could get more respect and be more noticed by the people. What is Jesus telling us not to do here? He's telling us not to create this clergy laity distinction where the clergy are the better the better people, the more important Christians and the and then there's the lesser people because Jesus is making a kingdom of priests. The the Christian body is a kingdom of priests. There's there's no male or female or slave or free or Jew or Gentile. It's like we're all one in Christ. That's important that we that we keep that theologically like centered. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you can't and, and we do this automatically, right? Like wrongly we we look at like a, a pastor and we think like the pastor's automatically the more godly person in the church like you just would think he's the godliest person in the church and i'm just thinking like it could be like some mom that's just like in the nursing mother's room right now it could be the janitor <laughs> like, like there's no reason to think that because you have a gift of teaching you're godlier catch that there's just no reason like you should not think i'm godly because i have a gift in teaching and the lord's given me that that doesn't mean he gave it to me because of my incredible godliness. And more, more importantly, though, I suppose is this, because in a sense with Christians, yeah, some Christians are probably more godly in their behavior than other Christians. But even then, the behavior doesn't dictate their like status as Christians. Every single Christian, the lowest in the body of Christ is, is well, Jesus put it this way, right? He says, John the Baptist, he is the greatest of the prophets, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Do you catch it? Like there's no distinctions that <clears throat> that they were trying to reinforce with their clergy laity. They're like, we're the, the, the spiritual leader people with we're like special, more holy and better in some way. There's just none of that. So Jesus applies it by saying, so don't be called rabbi, like in the sense that they were, oh, rabbi, rabbi, right? Don't be called instructors or, or teachers. Yet we do have in scripture, Paul's like, I'm Paul, an apostle. Um, they, it talks about teachers. It talks about prophets in the New Testament. It talks about people who have titles. Um, elder and um, pastor are, are the same title, effectively. Elders uh, and pastor teachers. These are titles that Ephesians uses. That's what you mentioned earlier, Ephesians 4. And then you also mentioned uh, 1 Timothy 3. It says, if anyone aspires the office of, let me give it to you guys as well, the office of overseer. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, and Paul uses the title overseer or bishop, which is this, which is synonymous with elder. Some of us have been raised thinking, I was, thinking that um, overseer or bishop is different than elder. Not, not when you look at the things in context. Elder and overseer are the same thing. Deacon is something that's different, but but not, not overseer. Overseer and elder are the same. They must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, all this stuff. We have deacons. So there's titles in the New Testament. These things are totally appropriate. It's not carrying the title as if it elevates you above the other people of God. Why does Jesus have to warn us about this? Because we do it over and over again automatically 
it's just like a thing that humans do unless we're deliberately not doing it. So it has to happen in the heart of the leadership, I think. I think that if the pastor always considers himself merely the, like truly the servant of those around him, even though he's leading them, he's doing it as a servant. I think if he really does think about himself like that, then it will it will push that view out towards others automatically. But if he thinks of himself in a high manner, it will just you know his his mouth will speak from the overflow of his heart, and and he will he'll puff himself up. And when people talk to him, he'll give them a look. Right? He'll respond to them with disapproval because they didn't give him the honor that he thought he deserved. And there's a there's a danger in the body of Christ if we do this because we're dishonoring the reality that everyone everyone is uh, the temple of the holy spirit so there there's my understanding of it there yeah and our fish has a question trying to wrap my head around why god would create people that knew um that he knew would not choose him what are your thoughts thanks so much for all your work i've learned so much from you thank you thank you our fish well let me share something that you can consider here's some food for thought on this topic like why would god make somebody when he knows that person won't choose him. Um, first off, like in in reality, I don't think there's a problem with God making people that he knows won't choose him because, and you're going to think I'm a Calvinist here, but I maybe I just agree with the way that Calvinists think on this issue. And I think that when they, like when Calvinists talk about the glory of God and uh, living for his glory and how God's glory is, is an end, in and of itself, I absolutely 100% agree. I think that's totally biblical. And I think that's not a Calvinist thing. They just tend to emphasize it more so than um, than, than other people do. But I think that if, if God makes somebody, gives them free will, and that person rebels against him of their own free will, and they reject him, that that even gives God glory. Okay? And, it, and they're not... Um, it's a tragedy, but it's not an injustice. Do you see the difference? It's like, it's sad. You know, like... If if you're um, if you're if you get married and then your your wife leaves you, it's a tragedy, right? And the the fact that she left you is wrong. But what if you knew she would leave you, but you but you still went ahead and got married and you decided to commit yourself to it and do everything you can to make the marriage work, and then she left you? You might think it was strange. You would want to know why did you do it? But I wouldn't think the person did something wrong. Like the husband didn't do something wrong by marrying the woman he knew would end up leaving him. Maybe it just meant that he really loved her and he was going to give every effort and he was going to make sure to display that love to the rest of the world, to be that patient and loving and gracious husband. And so it, when she left him, it was a tragedy, but there was no injustice in his part. And I'm very, very, very sensitive to any sort of language about God's judgment that starts to act like him judging others is a reason why we should judge God, where we start to think he's wrong when he's judging sinners. So I would, I would encourage you to like really guard your heart against that kind of reasoning. Uh, be aware if it's starting to crop up in you. Now there's other like sort of philosophical answers to these questions. When a person, um, if God only made the people that would receive him, I would not exist. Like there might be somebody else named Mike, but it wouldn't be me, right? Because in my family history are a number of people that have rejected God. And if they didn't exist and live and have kids, I wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be me. It wouldn't be this DNA and this person right here before you now. Like I would not exist unless God had long sufferingly allowed and, and you know, the creation and the existence of people who would reject him. And, and how many people is this true for? 
there's a sense in which you realize that in the real world, what's actually happening is you get both the wheat and the tares together. Like you don't just get one. And so there's, there's an element of that as well. There's probably other reasons and thoughts we could give on that, but those are some things to think about. Hannah Belval has a question. Hannah Belval says, any advice on how to humbly share Jesus with loved ones who are facing struggle? I find that most people are defiant or see you as a Bible thumper on a high horse, even some believers. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. Um, people do tend to, um, yeah, I'm just speaking as someone who has um, a lot of family who aren't, we're not walking with the Lord. Um, there's a like allergy to even the topic of God that comes up and as gracious as you try to be, there's, let me try to see it from their perspective. There's an anxiety because they're not walking with God. Okay. I'm going to speak as a Christian, as, as you know, who believes the word of God here. There's an anxiety in the heart directed towards the true God because they're not actually walking with him. Their life is not submitted to him. When you come around, your presence tends to provoke that anxiety or that discomfort. Um, on top of that, there may be an awareness or an idea that you yourself are not, haven't always been gracious in the past. And um, family is sometimes really good at, at um, always remembering the, the time you irritated them, you know, 20 years ago. And so, and so that's like permanently emblazoned upon your forehead is, is that you're the person who did that thing that they didn't like. And that does sometimes happen in family, sadly. But there's those two things going on. One is, one is the Lord, right? People tend to react to Christians the way they're reacting to God. So then you're like, why are they being so mad at me or weird with me or awkward around me? Well, that's how their relationship with God is like that. Um, in addition to that, we are sometimes abrasive as, as people and, and the world will maybe look for an excuse to discount your opinion because it's uncomfortable to hear what you have to say. So all that to say the the basic advice is, is to be gracious and kind and thoughtful, to care about how you say it, to not just look for trigger moments. Like now's the moment where I'm going to speak up the truth, but to think about, um, strategy and tactfulness on how you will say things. Um, and, and a, an idea for a book you might want to get on this is the book Tactics by Greg Kokel. And it really is tactics and strategies on how to thoughtfully and graciously share your Christian faith. I think that it's got all sorts of like specific strategies. Like if they say this, try this maneuver, try that maneuver. So tactics by Greg Kokel could be a great, a great thing to look at. Um, yeah, that's how you humbly share Jesus with loved ones is you, you, um, you make sure that you're not just doing your Christian duty by sharing, by saying Christian things at them, right? You're doing everything you can to reach them with the truth. If you feel they're anxiety, anxious about it, then you take steps to try to comfort them in that area. But yeah, check out the book Tactics. That's a great place for you to go. Katie has a question. Hi, Mike. I'm a teen and got saved in March. Oh, praise the Lord, Katie. That's awesome. Boy, that was... Um, March was so it's coming up on a year, not too long from now. So you're like 10 months old in the Lord. Um, I haven't read the entire Bible yet, but um, how can I protect against false doctrines and test them when I haven't read the entire Bible? Thanks. Well, I'll tell you this, um, Katie, the first thing I would encourage you to do is, is you just start with the core doctrines. So the core doctrines, like who Jesus is, right? How he saves us. Um, I would recommend you go through my Romans series. I have a verse-by-verse -verse teaching through the whole book of Romans online. I, I would strongly recommend you check that out. There's tons of theology in that if you haven't already. 
And I think that that will help protect you. Obviously, this is only if I'm not a false teacher. Obviously, I'm going to tell you I'm not a false teacher. Of course I am. So are false teachers, you know. Um, but what I'd recommend you do is don't just listen to my studies and just, just believe it. You know, have your Bible open. And as I'm walking through the verses and talking about them, don't believe me unless you're like, yeah, I see that. I see that in the text. That's that's contextually, it's accurate. One way to test a teacher is when they, and, and here's something you can watch out for, Katie, is people will jump around verse to verse to verse to verse. They say a bunch of stuff. They jump around. And then they've got you convinced because they just went like a whirlwind through a bunch of different scripture. This is what cult groups always do. They always do these like speed, super fast trips, you know, a thousand miles an hour right through the Bible, verse, verse, verse. And then they're like, see, I'm right. But if you go and get a loan and you just try to find what they said in the Bible yourself and you read it in context and you go, does that verse in this, in this paragraph, in this chapter, in this book, does it, does it mean that? That's when their teachings fall apart. The most important stuff in scripture tends to be the more plain things. Um, the things that are so essential for us to believe tend to be the more plain things, which is why so many Christians agree on them. And uh, there's a couple tips for you. Yeah. Yeah. D don't let people pull verses out of context. If, if they're going too fast for you, just just don't don't soak it up. And uh, check out my Roman series. I think you'll love it. All right. Question number nine. New Testament theologist has a question. In your view... What is the fate of the devil? Romans 16.20 uses a verb, crush, that is common in warfare contexts, suggesting destruction. See also Hebrews 2.14. How does this all work with 1 Corinthians 15.24-28? You know what? Let's just look at these verses. So Romans 16.20. This talks about how the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Um. Now, I think out of this, you're suggesting like, does that mean the devil's like is annihilated? Suggesting destruction? Is that is that perhaps what you're getting at? Um, you know, the word crush, does that, what does that imply about him? And I, I personally, I think crush could, I mean, you were crushed. Um, like this could mean a number of different things. It could be destroying his power. It could be ending his ability to influence or touch other people. It could be, it could be annihilating him. Like this could be interpreted in a variety of ways fairly. So we'll need other scriptures to come alongside and answer that question. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Um, so he's going to be destroyed. Um, that would be consistent with Satan being like eliminated from existence or any other experience that could be called destruction. Surely if Satan is stripped of all power and authority and cast into the lake of fire, that would also imply destruction, whether he is continuing to exist there or not. And then first Corinthians 15 Uh, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Um, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Okay. I don't know if this question, if this verse helps us too much, to be honest. Now, maybe it does. I'm just, you asked my opinion here. 
and it sounds like you've already got, perhaps you already have a view on this New Testament theologist. What I would go to, to establish what I think happens, you know, to Satan is revelation. And in revelation, we read about him being cast into the lake of fire. And then for a thousand years, he is kept there. And then he is, um, then there's the the millennium because I'm premillennial. So I do think there's like this time period where Satan is, he's, he's cast into the lake of fire. He's let out briefly and then cast in again. So a thousand years later, he's still in the lake of fire. My understanding would be then that the lake of fire, it's hard to say that this lake of fire would end his existence if a thousand years after being in there, he's still alive or at least still existing. Whether you want to call that life, I don't know. I mean, if it's the second death, I don't know if it's appropriate to call it life. And here's where Chris Date's going to make a video about everything I just said now. So. <laughs> We'll see. He's my friend. Chris is my friend. He's my friend. He just always wants to talk about his his views, which is fair. That's what he does. Wade Nelson has a question. It says, I constantly hear the cliche, God is in control. Is it anything more than a meaningless platitude? It seems to me theologically sloppy and implies divine determinism, which I reject. Um I don't, I, I think it's actually a really powerful and beautiful phrase. I love that God is in control. It's a great reminder to me that of the, the sovereignty of God. Um, you suggested it, it, it feels like a meaningless platitude. Can I suggest that that's not because of the words or the meaning of the words? It might be because of the way people use it in, con in, in whatever context where they say it and you feel like, I feel like you just said that and it didn't mean anything. Um, I don't use any of these things as cliches. Some of the things I say as a Christian sound like cliches. God is good. It's not a cliche to my heart. Not at all. And so I would suggest that you as a Christian, Wade, you want to make sure that the phrase God is in control is never a cliche for you. Whether someone else uses it in an empty, vain fashion, whatever. Not to you. To you, God being in control is a beautiful and wonderful and an encouraging thing. You, you know that he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, scripture says. Now, does that imply determinism, divine determinism? That God is, not only is he um, like in, in control, but he's actually causing all things to happen. But, but see, control and causing all things that happen to happen, these are different concepts. So... God's in control doesn't mean he's doing everything that goes on. Like when your phone doesn't work, God made it not work. Um, this is this is a view that some people have. I don't have. Um, some Calvinists would, would hold to the view of divine determinism. I, I reject that view as well. I love the phrase God is in control. Don't let Calvinists own the, t the term God is in control. Oh dear, don't, don't let that happen. We both can share that term and be happy about it. Um, studio has a question. What are your thoughts on generational curses? Can believers be cursed by the actions of a parent or grandparent or by having native, um, American, native American blood? Oh dear. Um, studio. I have so much dislike for stuff I've heard about generational curses and a lot of my dislike is pastoral. I think the idea of generational curses causes massive anxiety in people. I think it causes them to then feel like they have to do some special thing that is generally not found in scripture, that they're going to get deliverance somehow. And it, it to me, causes all kinds of problems. Um, there is a curse that we're all under. You could call it generational, right? 
It's when Adam ate of the fruit, then the curse came and we're all under it. And there is one way to get out of it. And that is through Jesus Christ. Okay. So if you're talking a curse that mankind has, and, and it's in our blood, so to speak, I mean, maybe not literally, but so to speak, it's in our blood because we're of Adam, then yep, there it is. There it is. It's the curse of sin and death and we're all under it. And we need Jesus Christ to be delivered from it. But this is a deliverance that every single Christian has. But if you're going to tell me, and some people do, that someone can be a Christian and they trust in Jesus and they've been delivered from the curse that came through Adam, but they still have some other random curse upon them that I am just, I have every problem with that. <laughs> if it, is it possible? Is it like, but could it be like, maybe could it be, is it like a million to one? Could it be? I don't know if I can say it's completely impossible. I will say it seems inconsistent with the teaching of scripture because of the fact that Jesus delivers us from the ultimate curse. And to think that then there's these leftover curses or like, cause you have a native American blood, like, um, I'm two thirds Irish. Okay. So my, my ancestors were pagans, um, there you go. Like, I guess I got one too. And somehow Jesus delivers me from the curse of sin and death, but not the curse of the Irish or something. So I, I have every problem in the world with it. And it breaks my heart because I see people full of anxiety, doing weird things to try to get deliverance from curses. Um, so yeah, there's my, my thoughts on it. If I'm wrong in some sense, if there's such a thing, a generational curse, like I don't, Oh, now does that, does that mean, um, there's no such thing as like somebody having residual issues in their life because of weird, even demonic things that were going on earlier in their life. I won't say that, right? Like Jesus talks about a man who was possessed and then um, the spirit was cast out of him, but the person didn't fill the house with a new guest, which should be the Holy Spirit. He, in other words, he didn't get saved effectively. And so the, the, the demon went around, found seven others worse than himself. And then the last state of the man was worse than it was before. So what that would tell me is that we are, we are prone to fall into the same spiritual like bondage that we once were in the past, but the solution is going to be the Holy spirit. The solution is going to be God. Um, so there's, there's, I don't want to rule out all spiritual warfare or something crazy like that. I just, the language I hear of generational curses is people systematizing stuff that sounds like they're just making it up as they go scaring people and then providing them with spiritual solutions that I find questionable. And I think it creates a massive amount of anxiety. You guys, please share with, share your opinions about this sort of thing. Um, maybe I'm off on, in some respect. Um, I'm extremely suspect. I think it's unhealthy and I don't see any scripture that clearly teaches generational curses or any curse that's not cured by the blood of Christ. Um, Number 12, Uk Dove, Uk Dove Girl. Oh, UK Dove Girl. Okay, I see. She's probably from uh, Britain. Hi, Mike. Question. How do you know a vision given with eyes open and you're very lucid is from the Holy Spirit and not your actual subconscious? Okay, I cannot be like the, the go-to person on this. So I'm just going to tell you what I would, what I my rule would be for me. If I had a vision or a dream or a thought that I thought might be the Lord, I would only treat it as it might be the Lord, but I will not rely on it because might be God isn't the same as it's God. However, if I had something and I, two, two qualifiers, I felt that it was clearly from God. Like there's just a knowledge in my spirit that this is from the Lord. There's just that awareness. It's, it's not, hmm, maybe it's rather just, I'm, I'm just aware. There's like a faith 
that is in my heart that this is from God. And then two, I have been right in the past with a good faithful track record. Then I might think that it was truly from God. Now, if you have had a bad, if you don't pay attention to your track record, you're going to set yourself up for delusion and thinking that you're being led by God when you're not. But if you've had that awareness that is from the Lord, this is just me speaking experientially here. Um, that would be something I'd look for. And then a track record that shows that I've been right in the past and not wrong. You may then go and test it with other believers and say, here's the thing, like wise people you look up to in the faith, people who you can get on the phone and say, hey, I'm going to tell you what, what I saw, what I think about it. Can you pray for wisdom and then give me some counsel on this? And you try to confirm it with others who also have the spirit. There's my thought on that. Andrew Polak says, is it biblical to pronounce a blessing on someone for instance, with words like I bless you, uh, I can sense a good wish, but also looking down on someone. So is the concern perhaps Andrew or Andrej, Andre, I said Andrew, didn't I? Andrej? Don't know how to pronounce your last name. First name or last name for that matter. Um, I, I get the idea that here you're concerned that saying bless you is like you're looking down on somebody, like you're sort of asserting like a um, spiritual authority over them. Well, let's look at Hebrews 7, 7. And I do understand why you're thinking this because here's the passage. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. This is in context of how Melchizedek blessed Abraham in Genesis. So Melchizedek blesses Abraham and then the, Le the, Le the Levites, the Levitical priesthood comes through Abraham's descendants. Hebrews is trying to say the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is a type of Christ, that that's greater than the Levites because their father, who's greater than them, was blessed by Melchizedek, which means he's greater than Abraham. Okay. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Um, so in a sense, yeah, I mean, verse 7 of Hebrews 7 would make you think only those who are the superior should bless others. Um, however, in Christ, we just discussed this earlier with a question about leadership. We are all, we are all um, in Christ equally, right? And so why can't, if there's no, don't call, have anyone call you teacher, you know, pastor, rabbi, like in the sense of elevating one above the other, if that's the case, if that's the nature of the, of the new body of Christ, then it seems to me that blessings can be mutually given. And so someone could say, you know, uh, I bless you in the name of the Lord. Um, they could do that and it wouldn't be a problem. Although usually I don't say I bless you. I don't know if I've, if I ever say that. I usually say it more as a request personally in my prayer life. I'll be like, Lord, bless that person. Bless that person, Father. Um, so maybe that's the difference. Maybe it's the one who's doing the blessing. It's not me blessing you. It's just me praying a blessing for you. And everyone can do that. So... I bless you in that sense would be different than God bless you. Maybe there's a there's there's a difference there that establishes um, no no rank above the other person when it's God doing the blessing and not me. Perhaps that's perhaps that's a little piece of it. I have to think some more about that. That's a good question. Leslie Johnson says, Pastor Mike, why is Jesus called everlasting father in Isaiah if he's not the father according to trinitarian explanation thanks for all you do you know what leslie i got this question a couple weeks ago and i meant to like sit down and and do the work on it because i've worked on it a long time ago and i have my little answer ready and i just legitimately can't remember right now and couldn't remember 2 weeks ago either i've been way too busy um with a lot of stuff recently and i haven't you know it's one of those things on the list that i want to get to um 
let's let's look at the passage together. I'm not going to probably give you guys the right answer for it today, but I, I think that it'd be fruitful to look at it. Um, look at it together and just think about it for a brief moment here. Isaiah 9, 6, it speaks of Jesus. Unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then there's a description of his kingdom, the increase of his government and of his peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this is this ties in with like Daniel's prophecy of like the rock that destroys the nations of the world and then grows and takes over the world that he's going to be the one who's the ultimate king of kings. That's the increase of his government has no end. Well, what about his titles? Um, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One of the things that occurs to me in this passage, I'm just thinking out loud with you guys here, is that Counselor is also a name for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he would give us the Counselor. Everlasting Father is is, is the name of the Father. Um, and Prince of Peace is a designation for the Son. And so here we have him being called, um, the. his name shall be called, and we have the, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son now, does that mean Jesus is the Spirit, is the Father, is the Son? I don't think so. Um, he's also called Mighty God. Um, so there's perhaps just the idea that his identity is, is fully representative of God on earth. He's the one who fully represents God on earth. Uh, that, may be, that may be what's going on there. I would like to look into it more and hear what actually some theologians say about that passage before I like lock in an answer. There's a couple thoughts for you. Let's see. Um, that was Leslie... And Joe Burton's next. Joe says, hi, Mike. Is it possible that the current trend and level of awful political prophecies is actually setting up the Antichrist rather nicely to come and save the world? Will he be a progressive? I, Joe, I will not comment on whether it's setting up the Antichrist for a few reasons. Let me give you the reasons. I will comment on the reasons. <laughs> um, I don't know if the Antichrist is coming next week or in a thousand years. Right, I'm premillennial. I think these things are future. I just think that over the years, I've just realized we always assume the end times are 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 in the tribulation is like coming any second now. And my whole life, I've heard this. And if we were, if we lived longer, if you had lived for even longer in in life, you would have heard it for longer. Um, I just think we've become too self-focused when it comes to Bible prophecy. Um, generally speaking, that a lot of the, the premillennials, a lot, not all, not at all by any stretch, but a lot, have just assumed that this has got to be the end. But if you think back to when like World War I was happening, you would have thought you were legitimately justified in thinking that, okay, well, the Antichrist is coming. Um, look, the whole world's at war. This stuff, it's around the corner. When World War II was coming, you would have thought, like maybe you would have thought it's, it's Germany, you know, um, it's Hitler. I mean, look how he's persecuting the, the, the Jews, right? Like, doesn't that look like Revelation? Is it possible that Satan is just always trying the same thing over and over and over again? So it's constantly looking similar to the Antichrist, like John's like many Antichrists have come already. And so then finally the one will come. But if we keep trying to predict the one, assuming that we're in the end, the end of the end times, then we just keep being wrong. And this is the problem with the 2020 prophets as well. The people who predicted in 2020, and I mean guys like Kenneth Copeland and 
I mean, you guys help me out. Like, let's name the people, right? I, I think we should name them. I, I was considering doing a video where I just give you guys a list of the names of the people who falsely predicted the end of COVID-19, falsely predicted Trump getting back into office, and still are leading astray large numbers of people who are insisting that, like, they were right. Trump Trump really did win, and he really did get into office somehow in some weird way that's like, it's like metaphorical or something. I don't know. I want to name these people and call them out, not because I'm hateful of them, but because I want to rescue the church from their influence. I don't want them having any influence over you. You should disregard them. You should ignore them. And if you guys know of people who have, please put them in the in the chat. If you're confident that these people had falsely predicted things in 2020 and they're not even done, they just keep on going. Um, man, there's a, there's a YouTube channel I'll mention. It's called It's Me, Not Him. And I, I feel bad mentioning it, but they're misleading large numbers of believers, right? And all I've seen on this YouTube channel is videos of false prophecy and reinforcing it and trying to like double down on it and triple down on it and say that they're still right about Trump, all this stuff. And, and I'd say in most churches, they're un, they're unaware of a lot of these false prophets. But on online, there's a rabbit hole on YouTube where you fall into these, you know, issues. So is that setting up the Antichrist? I mean, it, it sure could be or not. I have no idea. What it is doing is it's teaching us who not to trust and who not to consider as a reliable source. And so, I mean, everybody who predicted it, like even if they come out with a little repentance video later, right? Jeremiah Johnson, uh, Chris Vallotton, um, you, you get these guys. It means that you can't trust the next thing they say. That's what it means. That's, that's the most important part for us to know. You proclaimed a national prophecy for all of us to believe. You said it was in the name of the Lord. It didn't come to pass. The next thing you say in the name of the Lord is not to be trusted. It's very simple. All right. Carmen has a question. Says, I recently joined a ministry that goes into strip clubs to spend time with the women in the clubs. I've gotten backlash from my family and just curious if your opinion, uh, in your opinion, is it biblical? Thank you. Um, Carmen, it, it's, um, uh, I guess there might be a way to do it well. Um, it's obviously a very potentially dangerous ministry for people. Um, I, I realize that Jesus, uh, we always say Jesus hung out with sinners and prostitutes. Um, I, <laughs> that's not really what Jesus did. Like he didn't like hang out with them, like hang out a term that means something that is different than what Jesus was doing. Um, he preached to them and he would allow them to to be his disciples to turn, but he preached to them to turn from sin and all that. So I think if there's a heavy focus on evangelism, if there's a heavy focus on, on a changed life and a transformed life that that's, and if it happens real fast or slow, I'm, that's not my point, then that's there. But if it turns into like, this is my new social network is I hang out with the people at the strip club and I slowly try to like friendship evangelize them. I think that's, that's probably not a good or godly thing to do or a way to do it. Yeah. Um, you need to be the one to make that decision. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Can it be done hypothetically? I'm hypothetically, I'm open to it, but I'm very concerned. It's like, there's so many potential issues that go on there. Problems of lust. I would not go into a strip club to witness to people. No way. Right. Why? Because I'm a man that is not, <laughs> not that strong. <laughs> I'll tell you, it wouldn't be good for me. Nope. Not going to do it. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm going to be tempted to sin so that I can try to bring others out of sin. Like this is Christianity 101, right? Um, yeah. Honor God first. Stay faithful to God first. Do not 
compromise your walk with God. That's that's before all else. Um, Rachel has a question. I joined a prayer group at my church. This prayer group is discussing and praying for unbiblical things and using a concerning devotional, Jesus Calling. What should I do? Um, contact your pastor and, and and let him know. Jesus Calling is not is is a um is a demonic book like i don't say that casually jesus calling is is a channeled book right where somebody the author pretends that they channeled jesus and then wrote what he said but what he said is supposedly said whatever this spirit guide this demonic thing this person channeled was not the lord um that's very scary i would do everything in your power without freaking out right like where you stay calm you stay composed you stay so you can give an air of wisdom and balance as you're talking to the pastor and the leaders about this stuff and you let them know you might even do a little research on your own into Jesus calling so you can bring some facts to the leadership pull out some quotes from the book that you can show are demonstrably unbiblical if the leadership won't listen go to the elder if the pastor won't listen go to the elder board like go to the all the leaders you can in the church and talk to them about it if they won't listen then you, you just got to get out of that church um, it's that big of a deal this is like if Jesus, Jesus Calling is, is a hugely wrong, um, unchristian book. It's just, oh, Rachel, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let, let's pray for Rachel, you guys. Lord, we lift up Rachel and pray that you give her wisdom and boldness, compassion for those who are in error around her and discernment to see the error and be able to have the the just the ability to try to bring others out of it. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bring all this, uh, work it all together for good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, Chip Ludic says, why did Paul warn the Corinthians about another Jesus in 2 Corinthians 11.4? How is that relevant for us today in light of John 17.3? These are one of those questions where the way it's worded makes me feel like you already have the point and you wanted to hear me talk about it, which isn't necessarily wrong, but I'm like, I have no idea what that point was, so I may or may not make that point that you have. Um, so here. We'll see what happens. Second uh, Corinthians eleven four. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Um, I think that the my understanding First Corinthians Second uh, Corinthians eleven, his concern is that they're more interested in apostolic personalities than they are in the faith once and for all delivered. And this is a problem in churches nowadays as well. My application to today, uh, and we'll look at John 17 in a moment. My application to today would be that, um, I'll put it on your guys' screen as well. Verse three right there. Oh no, there we go. Is that what can happen is we have so much respect for certain individuals, that man of God, that man of God. There are people who think Kenneth Copeland is such an incredible man of God that they will believe the the false theology that spills out of his mouth because they have such high regard for him. What Paul tried to teach people was to have high regard for the doctrine and to consider the people who are teaching it as secondary. And Jude was the same way, right? This is Paul in, in Galatians. He says, if anyone preaches a different gospel, even if it's me, even an angel from heaven, let him be accursed, right? The gospel has the authority not even the legitimate teachers of the past, even the apostles, the message has more authority than them. This is this is a, a, like a first century teaching that leads to, it isn't sola scriptura, but it leads to sola scriptura because scripture is the only place where we have the for sure teaching of the apostles. Um, but the, what matters is not the apostles, what matters is the teaching. Jude says it this way, it says that we should 
uh, earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And that word, the faith, is referring, to, it, it's a term not meaning you're be, you believing, but rather what you believe. So it's the doctrines. The faith is the, the theology of Christianity. And so we should earnestly contend for that. So the idea is that the message is bigger than the messenger when it comes to Christian teaching. And Paul, I think one of the concerns is that the Corinthians were divisive. They were like, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They were attaching themselves to teachers over the, over, over the message. And this was creating division in the church because the message isn't what united them. Instead, it was teachers that united them. I follow this person. I follow that person. We need to be united around the doctrines of Christ, not around individual teachers, because then it can lead to us perhaps believing a different gospel if the teacher we love was to give us a different gospel. Whereas Paul's like, hey, man, even if I teach you, guys, if it, this is me, Mike Winger, right? If I teach you, you, maybe you love my teaching. Maybe I'm your favorite teacher. If I teach you something different than the gospel of Christ, if for some horrible reason I went way off the reservation, you cannot follow me. Like that's on me. I'm going to be condemned for that. But you have to have such a commitment to Christ and the truth of Christ that you wouldn't follow a teacher who's wandering into error. That would be my application. Let's look at John 17, 3, which is the other verse you brought up. Um, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I don't, uh, I, I don't see how it's relevant in light of John 17, 3. Like, I'm not sure what the connection is there. Perhaps somebody else is noticing that. Um, the nature of our eternal life is, is a relationship with God through Christ. Um, that much is there for sure. Um, I'm not sure what else you might've been getting out there, Chip. Uh, Reagan Bechtold or Bechtold says, my family is oneness and wanted me to get baptized their way forever. I was baptized at my Trinitarian church and didn't tell them to avoid disputes, but shouldn't, but should I have been bold in my faith from a teen? Uh, Reagan, this is challenging. So the, the problem with oneness teaching is that they're, they're effectively denying what scripture says about the nature of who God is. And they want to baptize you in a way that, that makes it so that you're denying it as well. And so you, you just can't, like, you just can't in good conscience do that. Like, I'm going to do this thing that is a way of saying I'm embracing your, your theology that is incorrect, that is not like historic Christianity, that is not biblical. So you're in this sad situation where you have to, like, graciously hold your firm ground. And you have to say, I, I can do nothing else but obey my conscience before God. I can't do this because you are telling me to, because there's one authority that's definitely over you and that's God himself. And you may be in trouble for that. It may cause friction in your family. Um, I would just want to say, posture yourself in such a way, Reagan, so that you are doing this as a matter of integrity, not as a, and I'm not saying you're doing this way, but because I don't think you are, just the way you even write this question, you, you're probably not, but you don't want to come off like a complainy, rebellious teen. You're, you're faithful to God. <laughs> that's the idea i'm gonna do what is honoring to god i'm gonna be faithful to god i don't believe that theology i cannot proclaim it and be baptized in the name of it and um that would be my my advice to you is to to hold your ground and you might want to avoid disputes but these this is one of those disputes that's worth worth discussing but do it in such a gracious way do it with so much kindness that they can't 
they can't come at you because your attitude is bad, right? All there is is your kindness and your persistent commitment to what scripture is teaching and your refusal to take verses out of context. And then they have to deal with that or, or else they'll divert the attention to your bad attitude. And, and especially as parents, they'll just be like, well, you're just being a brat, you're, you know, and uh, they'll dismiss everything else you're saying. You might look at, um, you might look at the book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. Um, your parents won't like it, <laughs> but, but you might look at the book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. I think that he might have some content in there that might be useful for you. And it's not, it's, it's not a challenging book. It's pretty straightforward. And the last question for today is from Lindsay Kelsall, who says, thanks for your ministry. Is And you're welcome, by the way, Lindsay. You're very, very welcome. Is there biblical evidence for ghosts? Maybe not if a soul can only go to heaven or hell, have those who believe they've seen ghosts actually seen demons? Um, the only occurrence in scripture that I'm aware of, um, off the top of my head, uh, of, of something ghost-like happening in the Bible is when, and it's going to sound like a Star Wars movie here for a second, but when Saul uses the witch of Endor, she's a witch and she's at the locations Endor, uh, hence the Star Wars reference. Um, and he uses her to try to contact Samuel who is deceased and she tries to contact the dead. Samuel does actually show up. She seems to be shocked. Like she didn't actually expect it to work um, or perhaps didn't expect it to work in that way. So something shocking to her about this whole scenario. My impression is that usually when she tries to contact spirits, she's contacting demons and that they're impersonating dead, dead loved ones. That's why, and if they were around, so they know a demon would know perhaps things about your grandmother, stuff like that. And they can take your love for your deceased loved one and they can try to turn that into something that they can manipulate and twist. So I do think that generally speaking, that's what's happening. I think that she stands not as the, the witch at Endor stands not as the example of what normally happens with people who try to contact the dead. I think it stands as the exception. This is the abnormal thing. God actually did bring up um, Samuel to rebuke Saul, just to call him out for the wicked thing he was doing. But I think it's implied that this doesn't normally happen. And we know in scripture, God forbids it, like through the old, throughout the Old Testament, like do not contact the dead on behalf of the living. Like don't, don't, don't. It's forbidden. It's people ease into it in Catholicism because of the the idea of praying and uh, appealing for the prayers of those who have died and who are believed to be in heaven now. And um, I think that's problematic. I think that goes against clear teachings of Scripture. I think any first century Christian, well, who was around the apostles anyway, would never have done something like that. Um, I think that seems clear to me. And it's definitely not taught in scripture in the Old Testament constantly. Not only does the Old Testament say not to contact the dead, but it, it, so it, when the Old Testament tells the Jews not to do something, you might be like, well, maybe that's just the law. Maybe that was just for the Old Testament law and it was there for a reason. It's not in force anymore. But God actually rebukes pagan nations for doing it, which means it's more than just the law. Even those who were not under the law were rebuked for doing it. So there's that. Um, and, uh, it, yeah, there's another piece I'll put in the puzzle here as well. Um, I don't have scripture that says that demons are impersonating your loved ones. That's my impression of what's happening. But we do have this. Scripture talks about those who worship idols and how idols are nothing, but behind the idols are demons. So there's an, there's an idol of some god or some deceased person. Sometimes they're idols of deceased people, like nowadays with Mary or somebody like that. And... Um, 
it, Paul says behind these idols are demons. So in some sense, the demons are impersonating the thing that the idol represents. And they're receiving the worship and they're sort of empowering this false religion with whatever demonic way they do it. And that does give me like credence to the idea that there could be the impersonation in other ways as well. And so I do think, yeah, demon could be around. Someone's like, I feel like I used to be uh, a World War One soldier and I remember fighting in the battle and dying. And there, you know, and people get really locked into these things. I've seen it where it's not just like a weird fantasy, but it really looks like a demonic thing. I do think that that is demonic. I don't think we're contacting dead loved ones. I think we're contacting demons who are abusing our rebellion against God to manipulate us and destroy us. And I have seen it happen with people. So Lindsay, yeah, I, I hope that's that's helpful. Um, I try to build a case there for it without going beyond scripture, but basing it on, on scripture. You guys, every day I'm putting up a new video right now. I've put up three in the last three days. This is actually, today would be the second video from today. And you've got, or maybe it's four I've put up. Anyway, you've got like 14 more videos coming up over the next 14 days. Short clips of an interview I did with Elisa Childers. When was that? like two months ago and it's already on her channel the whole thing's there you can watch it i'm not trying to hold it from you there's even links to it in the videos that i'm posting but if you wait around you'll get a video every single day and it's kind of an experiment to see if this is a fruitful way to do stuff online if you guys watch these videos and and the, the response is good I, I might produce more short content like that um i've tried short content in the past it hasn't worked very well but maybe maybe i've learned better how to make stuff that's a blessing and helpful to people and I can do that in the future. Other than that, I will see you guys Monday for our continuation through the Mark series. We're probably going to take a little bit of a, a excursus on the topic of prophecy. And I think I'm just going to run through what are the different Christian views of eschatology? Views that are within Christendom. Christians don't agree on this issue. It's another secondary topic. What are the different views? So we'll talk about pre-mill and ah-mill and post-mill and we'll give you some details about these things so that as I continue in Mark 13, you actually understand uh, where I'm coming from as a pre-mill guy um, and how others might view it differently so that I can best inform you because I don't just want to convince you I'm right. Like I want you to understand what's happening in this time of study. So we'll talk about some of those things. That'll be on Monday, uh, unless something crazy happens. Um, yeah, so there's a possibility my schedule will will force me to change things. But the plan is 1 p.m. Monday. If not, I'll do it as soon as possible after that. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining. Lord bless you. <laughs> I, maybe I'm not blessing you, but God bless you and be with you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you. And may you remember that your hope is not in this world, right? You bring the hope to the world. The world does not bring the hope to you. And if you look to the world to bring the hope to you right now is going to be a bleak time. But if you realize that you're, you're one of those who is bringing hope to the world through Christ, a kingdom that does not perish, that is incorruptible, you're the one that brings the hope to the world. Then you will realize that the darker it is, the, the more you have an, a sense of urgency uh, to shine to shine, to shine, and to make sure that your kingdom that you belong to is is the kingdom of Christ, not just a political party. All right, that's all. Thanks.